like to ask you this morning to turn to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 9, verse 1, for the reading of God's Word. 2 Corinthians 9, 1. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them, but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be Ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel. Of Christ, and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. May God bless the reading of his word and minister grace unto all who hear. With regard to giving, we've discussed the need for fiduciary responsibility and integrity. We've discussed being in touch with the real needs of the saints, examples of church testimonies of sincere need and also sacrificial giving, whether it's the need in this case of the Jewish believers or the case of the Macedonian givers. We're moved by testimonies of grace. We've seen how the churches of Corinth could learn from the Macedonian churches about being more sacrificial in their giving and with regard to their financial goals. 
And today, we keep integrity and giving and those motivations for giving in view as we come to our third in a three-part series from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Cheerful Giving. First, we're going to see in verses 1 through 5, the preparation to cheerfully give. The preparation. Secondly, we're going to see in verses 6 through 10, the point to cheerful giving. The point to cheerful giving. And thirdly, in verses 11 through 15, we're going to see the praise that results from cheerful giving. The praise that results from cheerful giving. And so, if you're taking notes in your little scripture journals, or if you are taking notes on something else, or if you memorize how the flow of the sermon will go from an expositional sermon, like a good Baptist pastor, I use alliteration today. Three Ps. Preparation, point, and praise. Preparation, point, and praise. So let's take it on its parts first. Let's look at the preparation required to cheerfully give. I don't know about you, but whenever I'm not prepared to do something, it makes me a little bit nervous. I don't like to be caught off guard. I imagine most people are like that, especially when it comes to financial matters. You like to have a plan. You like to be communicated with. You don't like cajoling or exaction. And I suspect that this text is an every man kind of text with regard to that. There's a certain amount of preparation that is required, not for me to give. I might give, not necessarily cheerfully, but I might give anyway in a moment of inspiration. But if I'm going to give consistently with cheer, I want to be prepared. And this text screams about the preparation required if a gift is going to be given cheerfully. And I think that the text here shows us how important it is that finances are communicated one to another with regard to the church if, in fact, giving is going to be cheerfully made. So look at what the church leaders describe as over-communication in verse number one. It is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. It's, it's over the top. It's extra communication. I don't know, your, your translation, if you don't have the ESV, it may say some other phrase. There's different ways of saying it, but it's all communicating the same precept. And the precept is this. I don't need to tell you anything else about the needs of the saints and the ministry of the saints with regard to giving and receiving. But I'm going to anyway, because he goes on to say more things. Well, what can we mine from that as believers today? I think what we can mine from that is, if we're going to give cheerfully, there's an, an amount of communication that needs to occur so that we're prepared to give with cheer. It, we shouldn't be uh, making an 11th hour decision about, for example, giving a sum of, sum of money in keeping with our income, like 1 Corinthians 16 says. Uh, so to give with cheer, there is a need to have what we might consider, if we're pretty quick on the trigger, over-communication. And I think that's the meaning of the very first stanza, the very first verse of our passage. It's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. Verse 2, for I know your readiness. I, I know this. I've already boasted about your readiness to the people of Macedonia. I've talked to them about how ready you are to give. And you've been ready for a year, he says in verse 2, to finish what you started to pick up on the verses from chapter 8. And you've been ready for a year to make this gift. And your zeal, your exuberance, it's stirred up most of them. And so these, these churches, it's, it's, it's not that they're trying to outdo one another so much as they're being inspired by one another. They're being educated and informed by one another. And there's a preparation going on in the global church so that individual churches will meet needs and will be a part of ministry and mission in their Ju Jerusalem, Judea, and to the uttermost ends of the earth. And verse 3 says that the apostle is sending the brothers so that their boasting about the Corinthian believers wouldn't be empty 
in this matter, but that they would still be ready because he said they would be. So verse 3 references the brothers, and we looked at this last week at the end of chapter 8. It's the brothers of Titus and then a kind of well preacher, well-known preacher, a preacher of note, a famous preacher, and then another brother. And so we think that there was Titus and then a brother from the Macedonians and a brother from the churches in the region of Achaia where Corinth was located. And we think that those three brothers were, we know that they're part of the team that carried the, the liberal gift, the extravagant gift from the churches there over to Jerusalem to help out with the Jewish believers. And the apostle Paul expressed some humility with the way that he's handling this. He didn't just pull his apostle card out and say, you just trust me, I'll take care of the money. There's some responsibility that's exhibited here by bringing these brothers in to take them. And what I want to emphasize with this first point is how important it is that we are prepared to give so that the giving is cheerful. Paul's writing uh, superfluously. He's writing over the top about financial matters. It's important that we do communicate as best as we can over the top about financial matters. It's one of the reasons that we have five scheduled members' meetings a year. It's not to argue over the color of the carpet. We can't even afford to replace the carpet for crying in a bucket. I mean, it's, that's not why we meet. Uh, we don't meet, you know, to, to, to argue over little tedious things. We really do meet to over-communicate the finances, to figure out what the needs are in the global church and figure out how we fit. And those are the kinds of conversations that we have. And I want everybody to be on the same page with that, quite literally. Like, you'll pick up a packet after church today if you're a member, and, you'll, and if you're preparing to be a member, you'll get this soon enough, and you'll grab that packet, and two weeks from now on a Sunday night, we'll meet as members, like we do one, like five times a year, and you'll have a, a budget report, and you'll look through, and you'll see what's in there, and you'll see the income statements, and you'll figure out what your giving is going toward, and what you might want to give toward, and what missionaries we support, and these types of things. And that's important. It's important to be superfluous about financial matters, because for us to give cheerfully, we need to be aware. We need to be aware of what's going on around us. We need that awareness in the global church. If we're going to see a need so that we can meet a need, we've got to see the need first. And so we, we shouldn't be embarrassed about talking about needs, and we shouldn't be embarrassed about talking about finances. But there's a right way and a wrong way to go about uh, doing it. I like what Scott Haveman says about this section. He says, the Apostle Paul is pointing toward two opposite ways of giving. He said, the kind of generosity on the one hand that flows from experiencing God's blessing from trusting in the sufficiency of God's grace versus the kind of begrudging greediness and self-reliance that selfishly seeks to keep as much as possible for oneself. The former realizes that everything is a gift of grace and that God can be depended on for the future. This is the pathway of salvation. The latter views everything as a deserved reward to be hoarded out of insecurity and self-gratification, which are fundamental acts of unbelief in the faithfulness and goodness of God. Chapter 9, verse 5 indicates the apostle is concerned for their souls when he's having this conversation. Look at chapter 9. Verse 5, I thought, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So that's an interesting way of saying it, isn't it? I thought it necessary to urge the brothers, as Titus and these two other brothers, representatives of the church, to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for this gift that you promised to make so that it's ready, so that when I come, it doesn't seem like arm-twisting. As a willing gift, he doesn't want it to seem like exaction. And I think that kind of sheds light 
on the superfluous amount of communication, on the nature of that communication that the church leaders are supposed to have. There's a lot that is supposed to be communicated, but not in a, in a, in a kind of emotionally based, arm-twisting manner. It almost feels to me like a, a steady communication cycle is being communicated. Now, there are always emergencies and uh, big needs that come up, and it's just got to come on in a fever when that happens. But th- that shouldn't be the way that we give, and it shouldn't be the way that church leaders talk about giving. It's sort, of, sort of like, you know, you know, like trying to hype it up. You know, we shouldn't be hype men for giving. That, that's really not what I think is being conveyed here uh, in this. It's more of a, of a life pattern, a lifestyle of uh, of giving, it's it's a it's really where the idea of the tithe I think is rooted is in this God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, He owns everything, and so a representative part unemotionally is going to be consistently and cheerfully given for the Lord's work. I think that's the that's kind of the the nature of the old covenant tithe is a consistent and repetitive giving by the people of God that doesn't come with exaction and arm twisting and then if we give beyond that we give beyond that from our abundance but God owns it all and he has given us income for the purpose of seeing needs and meeting needs not only in our own immediate families but also in the family of God. And so nothing produces more buy-in or brings out more heartfelt opinions than money, right? We, we rightly connect money to how we spend our lives. Each dollar represents an irreversible, irretrievable investment of your time. So to flitter away a dollar as a Christian, it seems treasonous in light of Christ's investment in our time. Every single day matters. Every dollar you earn matters. So I'm not asking you to flitter away money in some kind of an emotional plea, I'm asking you to consider bigger things and to make unemotional and yet important decisions without exaction about your financial picture. It follows logically that spiritual treatment of such a weighty matter as giving is something that we should receive from the Word of God. And God does not leave us bereft of texts when it comes to these matters, weighty matters of finances and of giving. We pick up on an important text right here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, but it's far from the only one. The Bible has much to say about giving. And if you're interested in in a whole Bible treatment of giving, I would commend to you the rather thick book by Randy Alcorn, uh, Money, Possessions, and Eternity is the title. He wrote a whole treatise where he goes through every Bible text that references giving, and, and there's a lot of them. So Money, Possessions, and Eternity is the name of the book by Randy Alcorn. But the Bible speaks superfluously about matters of giving and receiving. And the Apostle Paul does that in our text today, where the Lord inspired him to write above and beyond communication. I think a healthy church is a church where members cheerfully give, and they see an uptick in communication, in blessings, and in their worship. There's no starvation diet of communication about the needs of the churches and the church. There's no, there's no starvation diet of blessings and giving and receive, receiving. And there's no starvation diet in the worship because the worship includes, built into it, an act of worship called giving. It's why we pass the offering plates. And so however meager, relatively speaking, that our offerings may seem in the eyes of the global world, it's something because it represents from us the widow's might. It represents faithfulness. It represents seeing our money and possessions in light of eternity to reference Alcorn. And so it's very, very important that we take a survey 
of our giving at a non-emotional time and take into consideration that we need church leaders that don't just try to squeeze us for another dollar, but that paint a picture of a lifestyle that thinks about what we have in light of eternity, in light of not only our own family, but the family of God. So our first point this morning is preparation that is needed to cheerfully give. Our second point comes in verses 6 through 10. It's the point to cheerful giving, the point. And we grab this this phrase right from verse 6. Look at verse 6a. The point is this. So what is the point of cheerfully giving? And this is, this is what we see right here. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, this verse could be misused. Let me take the long way around it to tell you what I mean. Let me take the long way around it. There are, um, there are what's called out there cheesy, cheerful dad jokes. You know, those dad jokes that you tell that are cheesy. Uh, you probably know what I'm talking about. I've got a whole bunch of them. I, matter of fact, I got a little booklet of dad jokes given to me for Christmas by my kids. And, and so it's, it's almost like self-inflicted punishment because they give me this gift and I use it. And now they're like, oh, dad, stop telling the jokes. One of the jokes that I tell, uh, and it's just kind of become one of my steady ones. I'll probably mess it up because I'm using it in the sermon. But it's, uh, have you heard the one about the broken pencil? And there's a dramatic pause, which is right now. And you say, I would tell you about it, but it's pointless. <laughs> That's cheesy dad humor right there, okay? I would tell you about it, but it's pointless. The thing about giving is it's pointless if you don't understand the big picture. It seems very a la carte. It's just sort of like, well, maybe I did that. Maybe I felt good about it, and I had some, some emotional or euphoric reaction to it. Uh, but, but there's no kind of big picture. Christians are the big picture people, if we're anything, aren't we? We're the people that's looking not just at this little life, but all of eternity and all of eternity past. And we're seeing the creator, the author and finisher of our faith in the midst of all of it. I mean, we're nothing if we're not big picture people, right? And so that's, that's, what, that's, the, that's the point. It's pointless otherwise. The point of it is we're big picture people. So don't read chapter 9, verse 6 as some kind of a proof text for the, pros, the so-called prosperity gospel. The point is, whoever sows sparingly also reaps sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully also reaps bountifully. That is 100% accurate in its context. And it is 100% devilish out of its context. This this is what I mean. The point is this. Verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not under compulsion. Not reluctantly. For God loves a cheerful giver. Stop at verse 7. Some of you are at this point, you're kind of like... Well, God loves an uncheerful giver too. All right, curmudgeon, I got it, okay? God loves us all. But R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, wrote, uh, I believe, poignantly, and I'm not going to quote him directly. I'm just going to reference him in case you want to go find it online. There's some nice videos of him talking about the different types of love of God. Don't flatten out the love of God. Understand that there's different types of the love of God. And you can say God loves everybody. That's true. You can also say God specially loves his people. That's true too. And you can say right here with this kind of texture, God has a kind of love for a giver that gives with cheer. There's something going on there that he just, he finds delightful. He loves a cheerful giver. 
I don't mean to over-spiritualize this from the standpoint that like every time my wife puts the check in the offering plate for us every single week, she's got to have some sort of a giddy feeling about it. Like she's cheerful, you know, like make sure and smile as you're putting the thing in the plate. I don't mean that. I mean, I think, I don't think the text means that. I think what the text is saying is overall, are you glad to be a part of God's global kingdom? Are you glad to be a part of what God's doing past, present, and future? Do you see what little bit you got right now, or a lot of bit, if you seem to have relatively a lot of bit, in light of the whole thing? You see, and that's what makes this sowing and reaping begin to to go just to the next level of depth and meaning in your life. Because it says in verse 8, God is able, so God loves, God. this becomes about God now. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. God's able to do that, right? So it's a statement of faith when we give. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God is able to make grace abound to you so that you may abound in every good work. Look at this reciprocal relationship from God to us vertically. We're also going to see it horizontally in a moment, person to person. But God is able, consider it vertically. God is able to make grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And then to bolster his point, he cites the Psalms and he cites the prophets. Look at at verse 9. And as it is written, he's citing the Old Testament here, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Don't let this get past you. He's quoting Psalm 112.9, which we read Psalm 112, our service leader did earlier. And the ninth verse here, he's, he's citing, but don't let the significance of this get past you because it answers that nagging question about sowing and reaping. Notice the word righteousness. His righteousness endures forever. When we talk about sowing sparingly and reaping sparingly and sowing bountifully and reaping bountifully, he's framing that in the context of righteousness, his righteousness and your righteousness, or to take it theologically, his righteousness imparted or imputed to you. Listen to how he talks about this. Look at verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower, so God gives seed to the sower, and bread for food, he will supply and he will multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest. And you could just stop right there. If, if you would leave the, the genitive phrase off the end of that sentence, you'd be like, health and wealth gospel, prosperity gospel, go get it, right? Sowing and reaping, sow a seed and I'll give you more, right? And I can stand up here like some of those false prophets, false teachers, false preachers do, and I can call for your money that way. If you'll just sow a seed in that plate, you'll be all right. That's not what this text means. It's a miss. It's, it's pulling it out to make a proof that it's not meant to make. Look at the ending of the verse. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of what? Of your dollars and cents or of your, say it with me, righteousness. So I am definitely, definitely a sowing and reaping kind of preacher. When you engage in the ministry of giving and receiving by faith, what you're doing is saying, not by exaction, not being cajoled, but when you cheerfully give, a sum of money in keeping with your income. What you're participating in is God's means of grace, his ways of meeting needs in his kingdom. Come, as as it has been made known in the church now. And when we take these things into consideration, he supplies the seed, he supplies the bread, and we get to be his emissaries, kind of like Adam named 
the animal kingdom. You know, we get to be his emissaries to have dominion with a little d because God's given it to us. And what we can count on in return, we, we might get money in return. I mean, the Proverbs tells us if you invest money wisely, you're probably going to get a return on it. But it's not a guaranteed thing. God's not a cosmic slot machine. He's not the grandpa upstairs. He's not some kind of a genie. That's not how this works. You don't, it might be best for your righteousness that you give and still stay poor, or you give and you move from being rich to poor. I mean, after all, you want to be Christ-like, don't you? What did he do? He comes from rich to poor. I want to be like Jesus, except for like that. Now, I'm not saying that you should seek to sort of sabotage your financial picture. Not at all. But if God has a Job or a Jeremiah-like mission for your life, that's sort of his prerogative, isn't it? Aren't his ways higher than your ways? Or do you think you know better than he does what's good for your life? God doesn't promise you blessings in a temporal sense. Often it logically follows from a life well lived. True enough. It often does, but it doesn't always, and it doesn't have to, and it isn't necessarily good for you if it does. If your ability to turn a profit would dry rot your soul and you would spend eternity detached from Christ, would it be worth it? Answer me this morning. Would it be worth it? God knows better than you. If, if your ability to make money of your own seeming volition would detach you permanently from Christ for the dry rot of your soul, is that, would you choose that? Is that the button you would push? Or would you, would you trade the riches of this earth for the riches of heaven and glory in Christ's fame for his name if it meant being relatively poor? Think about it. Think about that. The point to cheerful giving is not the prosperity gospel. The point is when we engage in God's project and we sow bountifully, what happens is we reach we reap a harvest of, you see it, righteousness. And it's his righteousness, he's quoting from the Old Testament, but here we get in verse 10, your righteousness. Now, I can preach that kind of prosperity gospel. You engage in God's project, Christ's righteousness imputed to you. I can preach that. What I can't preach is you sow a seed and you're going to get money in return. Because it's never, that's, I mean, that's never been the gospel. It's an aberration of the gospel. Don't watch those preachers. They're lying to you. It's not true. You could put money in that plate today, and you might not get financially blessed. I don't want to indicate to you. I've already repented for any way I've ever sounded like that in the past. I did that two weeks ago. I don't want to indicate in any way to you that that's the project of the gospel, because it's not. The project is in his richness he became poor for our souls. And on earth, he got tattered and beaten for our salvation. We might get tattered and beaten too. So whatever God has for you, the dry rot of your soul would not be worth it. It wouldn't be worth it. Not at all. So th this, this text here, verse 10, ends our second point. We looked at our first point, the preparation to cheerfully give. We looked at our second point, verses 6 through 10, the point to cheerful giving. And then finally, we're going to look in verses 11 through 15, the praise that results from your cheerful giving, from our cheerful giving. The praise that results. So the preparation, the point, and the praise. The ultimate good is the glory of God. We see that in chapters 8 and 9. It actually opens, at least the midsection does, chapter 8, verse 18, with thanks be to God. You see that? Look down at your Bibles, chapter 8, verse 16. But thanks be to God. And then it closes in verse 15, thanks be to God. 
Now we see this is doxological. It's praise-oriented. It's about God getting glory. That's, that's the ultimate good. It's not that we get glory, but that God gets glory. Thanks be to God. And so giving becomes an act of worship for us. Giving is an act of worship, like, like singing is an act of worship. Bringing your voices together in unison is an act of worship. Like hearing and eating from the Word of God, feeding on the Word of God is an act of worship. Like taking the rightly taking of the Lord's Supper and the, the rightly participating in baptism is part of our worship. Giving is an act of worship. It's even an act of, of corporate or group worship. Your, your finances are, are no innocent matter. There is a reciprocal relationship by the indwelling spirit that ensues in our faith that causes a thankfulness in worship and a longing to be with God's people more and more. Chapter 9, verse 14 talks about a longing to be with God's people. Why we're enriched if we are enriched with finances in this earth, chapter 9, verse 11 says, is to testify to the glory of God by our being generous, by our being cheerful givers. I mean, I suppose God could just confiscate it all and redistribute it. There's a sense in which he, he gets joy out of our voluntary giving. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, you believe God's like super strong, right? Like super strong. I mean, he could totally just take it from you, right? And he will at the day in which your number's called. It's appointed for man once to die and then to face the judgment. So he will take every wooden nickel you've scraped together. You're not going to take it into eternity with you. So that much is true, but, but he could even in this life just sort of, I mean, he, he totally could. There's something about God's love for a cheerful giver that sort of reminds us that when we voluntarily give, we're expressing our faith. It's an act of worship. I'm saying, I'm giving this back to God because my, my life belongs to God. I'm hidden, I'm hidden for God's glory in Christ. Like, like I'm hidden for him. I'm for, there's something that's going to be seen in the last day that isn't seen right now. By faith, I am able to see this bigger picture. So, so God's people can give as an act of worship because God has put his spirit in us, causing a thankfulness to well up in us and a longing to be with God's people. So the vertical and the horizontal, but he didn't take it, he didn't take it at least like this. He's not taking it by exaction. I, I think it was... Uh, Margaret Thatcher that said poignantly that the only problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. Uh, that's, that's kind of a problem with socialism. You run out of other people's money. Uh, imagine God could just take it and take your stuff and that'd be the end of the story. And yet what he is choosing to do in this time is let his people testify to his glory by freely choosing to give. And he's not just saying to give in some exacting way or some measured way, but with joy. He wants you to give cheerfully. I think it's interesting. It seems risky to me. I mean, if I were kind of consulting with God, it seems like a risky thing. And yet God knows better than I do that this is the best way for his gospel project to occur, is that we would freely give, that we would testify to something that we see by faith that's bigger than what the world sees with just dollars and cents with regard to money and possession and eternity. And praise ensues when this reciprocal relationship with his riches for our joy and with our riches for the believers' joy, something comes there 
that is really, really special with a right understanding of the seed and the sower with regard to a harvest of our righteousness. There is something there that is, that is special and that is meaningful and that is eternal. The reason for your cheerful and non-compulsive and non-reluctant and predecided and ready to giving for the reason for your submission to Christian giving is your confession of the gospel of Christ. Look down at verse 13 to see that in no uncertain terms. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God, the receivers of the, of the gifts. They will glorify God because of your submission. And where did that submission come from? He's grounding it and where it should be grounded. This, the grounding is it, the, your submission to giving and receiving. Your submission to being open-handed with God comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. It comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. God loves. God's able. He gives gifts to his people. And, the, and the, those that are in relative poverty, they actually have gifts. They're, they're praying for those that are, are more financially well off. This text talks about that, verse 14, while they long for you and pray for you. So they pray for you. So this grace is not just about having stuff. This grace is about a, a greater kingdom that in our relative poverty, we're being made rich. And those that have resources are being humbled by the gospel and their giving out of the grounding of their confession of the gospel. So in, a, in a very real sense, what we are about here is John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he took so that we would have everlasting life. He, he didn't, did he? We're very, in a very real way, we're, this gospel is, is coming, it's being preached when we treat giving cheerfully as an act of worship. For God so loved the world, not that he took, but that he, he gave. His whole project was precipitated on freely giving something for your salvation. And he just gives us, as image bearers and as saved people, he just gives us this opportunity, grounded in our confession of the gospel, to practice our faith by cheerfully giving. I mean, that's the point. And we get all obstacles that we can out of the way by having, at our best times, church leaders that over-communicate superfluously in preparation for giving, over-communicate the needs in the global church, over-communicate, over-communicate, that we're supposed to do that. We should never grow weary of doing good with that. Like, we should over-communicate. Over and, then, and then what's the response is we reciprocally, we give, and we give cheerfully, and we understand the point, and we see God's work done, and we, we get, he gets glory. He gets praise. Thanks be to God, this text ends. It's grounded in the gospel. So don't ever consider your giving as ancillary and separate from your worship and you're singing, and you're hearing the preached word, and your interaction with the saints, your giving is inextricably tied to the whole picture of your faith. And that's what 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is screaming loudly, I believe. I will conclude with a poem, a poetic expression uh, by the late C.T. Studd. He was wealthy. He was the wealthy son of a British businessman in the late 1800s, and he was educated well at Cambridge, and he left all of his wealth to be a part of what became known as the Cambridge Seven as a missionary to China first and then lastly to Africa, where he died in the early 1900s. And he's most known for this poem, and it has the refrain in it, only one life will, will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Based on those two lines, here's a piece of the poem that C.T. Studd, the late C.T. Studd, wrote. Let these words uh, minister to us as they're theologically rich. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. 
Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy love or holy will to cleave. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let us pray as our ushers come forward. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would drill deep into our hearts this message. That your grace in us would overflow in our giving with cheer. That we would understand the point of this passage and of the overcommunication that we are blessed to receive in print and digitally of the needs of the global church. And help us to rightly order our finances that we might be found absolutely guilty of giving based on our confession of the gospel and not out of exaction or compulsion and, and not out of a misunderstanding of some kind of a prosperity gospel. Please help us, Lord, to understand that soon this life's going to be passed and what we get to do, we get to do for Christ and that that's really going to last. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And now we ask God to bless this offering our ushers are going to receive as we, we cheerfully give and return a portion of what God has given us.